Welcome to another Eye for the Light podcast with Newton and Co. Now, I'm going to, as usual, introduce my co-host, but I'm actually tempted to introduce the person we're talking about today because she's absolutely fascinating. No. Okay. <laughs> David, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Chris. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Good to be here with you again. Um, and I've, I've literally, I've stopped him there doing the introduction because I wanted the honour of introducing today's guest. She is a most incredible photographer. Uh, the name will be familiar to many of our listeners, if not all of you. And she is a force of nature or maybe even a force for nature. Uh, I'm talking about, of course, Christina Mitty Mittemeyer, uh, Mexican born, but now living in, in Canada. Just a phenomenal photographer with so many interesting stories to tell uh, and so much interesting work to discuss. So, Christina, welcome. Thank you for joining us. My goodness, Newton and company. I love it. Thank you, David. Thank you, Chris. It's an <laughs> honor to be here. I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to Chris again now and let him lead off with, uh, with the first question. Okay. Um, can we call you Mitty? Yes, my friends call me Mitty, so yeah. Okay. Welcome, Mitty. You were born in Mexico and you studied marine sciences. Did the ocean spark your interest in photography or were you a photographer before that? Well, that's a good question. And I don't think it was the ocean that sparked my interest in photography, but the crisis that I was seeing in the ocean. The, to me, the, the loss of biodiversity has always been very personal and very painful. And I just wanted to find a way to shout from the rooftops that our planet is dying and has been dying for a while and that we needed to do something. So for the last 30 years, I, I just found that photography was a great way to bring people into the conversation and build new audiences. Where did you pick up photography? You know, where, did you, where did you get your first camera from? And you know, how did that process begin? I'm, I'm one of the late bloomers, David. I didn't pick up a camera until I was well in my 20s. I was already a mother with two kids. And uh, my ex-husband uh, loaned me a camera and I just started shooting with it. And thank goodness I, I had a talent because in the beginning, I just could not understand what all the buttons and dials were for. It's a steep learning curve, self-taught uh, on how to use the camera. And it's been a very long and satisfying journey. Like, so when you started, did you start straight away in the water? Did you start on land and then transition? Get, I'm going, getting a I'm camera on the water is harrowing for people to begin with. <laughs> so you get a camera and go, hey, I'm, I'm off on the water. Oh, my God. In, in the beginning, I, I didn't even own my own camera. So I was just shooting with a borrowed camera. And I think like many photographers asking myself, you know, how big is this thing, photography? You can focus on so many things. You can shoot vehicles or sports or weddings or, you know, even nature was massive. And so the first few years, I just kind of dabbled trying to figure out what is it that I was most passionate and interested on. And in the beginning, I thought I wanted to be a wildlife photographer. I, I really have love for nature and animals. And I discovered very quickly when, when you're the mother of two toddlers, it is almost impossible. The equipment, as you know, is expensive, heavy, getting there takes time and just spending time with animals is very time consuming. So instead, I focused on on the people in the villages where I was staying. And because I'm a conservation biologist, I knew that there was an important story to be told about the communities that live close to nature. And I didn't know any nature photographers that were focusing on that particular aspect. So I thought, you know, 
while my children grow up, I'm just going to focus on that one bit. The ocean, the underwater photography came decades later. That's, that's really interesting because obviously you are known for a lot of your indigenous people's work. And the fact that you started that almost as your method of still being able to shoot and tell stories is intriguing rather than you, you know, coming at it from, and I can't say that you didn't come at it because you had passion for indigenous people, but it was almost, uh, you wanted to do one thing, you realized you couldn't, but you could do this other thing and do it incredibly well. That's, that's such an interesting way of approaching it, I guess. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching my first uh, master class, master's of photography class. And this is one of the things I talk about, because it was frustrating to be, you know, stuck at home as much as I love my kids, you know, I could see all my peers and colleagues and the photographers I admired out there doing amazing things. And meanwhile, here I am stuck at home driving to soccer matches. And instead of being bitter about it, I decided to put my camera to work. And I, I had a little business making family portraits, photographing quinceañeras or weddings or, you know, graduations, whatever I, I could make a little bit of money with so that I could then go and spend time doing the thing that I loved. This was all in Mexico, was it? No, by, by now I'm, I'm married um, to Ross Mittermeier, who was my first husband, and he is a conservation scientist. He is the president of Conservation International. So he is a very busy man working all over the world, and I'm at home with the kids for the most part. So this is just outside of Washington, D.C., and I'm a oh. new immigrant <clears throat> to the United States, and I'm trying to, like just like David said, you know, just keep my foot in the door knowing that one day my kids would grow up and I would have a chance. We've already mentioned that you're a marine biologist and a photographer, of course, but you're also a conservationist and an activist. How do you mesh all those things together? And is any one of them your true passion? I think they, they're, they're all my true passion. I, I read a book when I was 16 or 17 that really made a big impression on me, Chris. It was by Paul Ehrlich called The Population Bomb. I think you're, you're a little older like me and you probably remember this book. In his book, Paul Ehrlich was predicting basically that humanity by the year 2000 was going to starve because we were going to be overpopulated and there was not going to be enough food for everybody. And I remember that being a huge trigger for me, which is the reason why I decided to study fisheries biology. Back in the 1980s, we used to think that the ocean was inexhaustible, that you could not reach the limits of what it could produce, and that the ocean was going to feed humanity. And so I wanted to study the science of catching fish in the ocean to feed people, because I am an empath, I have found in, you know, in later years. And I really, truly care about the suffering of others. So that was the initial impetus. But once I started understanding how industrial fishing is carried out, the massive industrial extraction of marine biomass is so devastating to our oceans and our planet. I mean, I just couldn't imagine that we were doing this as a, as a society. And I knew that there had to be a counter voice to, to speak up for the creatures that were dying, you know, either by accident in the incidental fishing uh, of other species or by design. And that's how I became a conservationist. That's, that's, you know, my first impetus was this is not right. And nobody's speaking up about it, you know. But when you bring a fishing net that has been trolled over the bottom of the ocean, these nets are called trawlers, these fishing boats. What they're doing is they're dragging heavy chains over the bottom of the sea. And it's, it's the equivalent of trying to harvest squirrels with a bulldozer. You know, they're trying to catch shrimp or prawns. 
but in doing so, they're destroying the reefs, the coral, the sponges, the starfish, the stingrays, the sea turtles. And all of these creatures come on the deck of the boat dead. And then they're discarded back into the ocean, you know, so that you can have a handful of shrimp. And I just thought, this is so wrong. <laughs> Somebody needs to call attention to this. So that was the beginning. So I studied marine biology as well, and I, I was studying in the early 90s, and they still thought that the oceans were inexhaustible back in the early 90s. It's it's probably only in well, maybe in the last 20 years, I guess, that people have started to wake up to exactly what you're saying, that it is, yeah. you know, we are going to run out and we're just going to destroy everything. Um, and I'm not even convinced that we've yet made enough of a change. I don't think there's enough impetus to that change yet. And a lot of your work is going towards trying to push that change how do you how do you find your work impacting that the role of photography and telling those stories getting that out there and actually affecting change at a, at a real level that's such a such a wonderful comment uh, david because we really have not understood that uh, having lost already 90% of the big fish in the ocean is catastrophic enough but we have to remember that when we used to think that the ocean was inexhaustible, massive industrial complexes that own very large fishing ships were born. And these people have entrenched themselves in governments and they have received for decades subsidies. You know, did you know that these big companies, they don't have to pay taxes, they don't have to pay for refrigeration, they have subsidized fuel. And so they're pretty much, you know, going out there almost for free to catch something that belongs to all of us, to mine it to extinction. And stopping them is incredibly hard because they are entrenched in the system. And it takes a lot of effort to educate politicians who make the decisions on these subsidies. You know, they don't understand it. And so these subsidies keep getting approved year after year after year. And it's only a handful of countries that, that carry on this activity. So I started as a scientist thinking that I could perhaps impact the conversation with data, with science. And I mean, you're a marine biologist, so you know how complex and time consuming it is to publish in the scientific literature. Just to, to be part of the academic community is enormous. And I, I, I was part of publishing probably five peer reviewed scientific papers. Oh my God, the effort that you go through. And then the realization, the disappointment that the science is so important, but very few people read it. And it is not something that you can easily convey to a general audience. People who have no background or education in science feel intimidated and they feel like they don't have enough context to participate when you confront them with science. And so I was finding a lot of just, you know, glazed over <laughs> people not paying attention to what I was saying. That's why photography became so important. Clearly, conservation is phenomenally important to you, at, uh, almost like a, at like a cellular level, uh, it feels like. And to that end, you you founded the ILCP, International League of Conservation Photographers. I guess your goals are pretty obvious. You want to get more stories out there, tell people about the state of the planet. But how did it come about? What were you? What were your goals originally? How have they changed over time? You know, how does it all yeah. together? Well, the true north back then, uh, and as it continues to be, was conservation. You know, how do we move the needle? And my tool was photography. And I was noticing that there were amazing photographers. This is, you know, when I was first starting to interact with National Geographic and getting to know photographers that were doing amazing conservation work, people like Nick Nichols or Joel Sartori or Paul Necklin. And yet, you know, they call themselves nature photographers. 
So I was going to the North American Nature Photographers Association and meeting all these other nature photographers. And a lot of them had zero concern for the environment or conservation. A lot of them were photographing flowers in their backyard and they were called, I mean, nature photographers as well. I thought there's a massive distinction here between the people that do this just for the aesthetic or for beauty or for whatever reason, and the people that are using their camera as a tool for moving the needle. And so I wanted to highlight that. And, you know, I didn't think that it was my role. I was just a housewife with three kids at home, but somebody had to do it. And so I convened a meeting naming this thing called conservation photography and then finding the photographers that subscribe to that idea. And I was so pleasantly surprised. You know, in the first meeting, we got 40 of the top photographers in the world. And pretty soon we had 100 photographers. And this was an army of storytellers working out there in the front lines, telling stories about trophy hunting and ivory trade and climate change and, you know, destruction of habitat in beautiful and evocative ways. And I started studying what war photographers had done to impact violent conflict around the world. And it occurred to me that conservation photography was the equivalent of a war photography because the war on biodiversity is pretty much invisible. And we need an army of people out there bearing witness and telling those stories. As a, a conservation photographer, how do you bridge the gap with your images to the politicians and the decision makers? And how do you see the role of the more harrowing conservation images alongside the very beautiful ones? Those are two very important questions, Chris. So let me break it up in, in two to answer your question. The most difficult thing is to gain access to that conservation conversation within the policy community. How do you get an, an appointment with a minister or with a president to show them what you're seeing out there and to plea for change? Well, I discovered early enough that when you're a photographer, you're, you have this celebrity about you. You know, people love photographers, especially nature photographers. And when you get to work for a magazine like National Geographic, all of a sudden you achieve a status, you know, where people want to talk to you. So I discovered that it was a good way to open the lock and gain access to the people that needed to see. To this day, you know, I get invited to speak to the minister or the president because they're looking for entertainment. You know, they want to see pretty pictures. But I take the opportunity to hit them with the important points that maybe they have missed because the loudest voices in the conversation are always the voices of those who are extracting the resources, not the voices of those who wish to protect it. So, you know, I, I just use the opportunity that I get to be the keynote speaker, to be the, you know, the entertainment at a dinner with politicians to always speak about this. The second part of your question is how do you balance the beautiful photographs with the more harrowing ones? And that's a great question. Chris. I believe that people really recoil and reject the destruction. You know, nobody likes to be confronted with that day after day after day. So I studied some of the most important storytellers in history. And the one that caught my imagination was Martin Luther King, because he didn't start the speech that made him famous by telling us he had a nightmare. He told us what the dream was. And I thought, well, that is an important distinction, painting the picture of what is it that we're trying to achieve. If we want to live in a beautiful planet where biodiversity thrives, what does that look like? But then Luther King reminded us that we were in the shits, you know, with the civil rights movement, and there was a lot of work to be done. And so every once in a while, we have to confront our audiences with the reality of what's happening out there. And it is that moment, it's a 
Paul Nicklin calls it a punch, punch jab, <laughs> where you kind of like startle people and wake them up to the pain of what we're losing. And hopefully you can jolt them into action. Let's talk a little bit about your photography. Tell us about your, your own photography and your photographic style. I still feel like I'm a hack. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm going through. Um, I just oh, we all aspire to be a hack as good as you. <laughs> you know, I'm going through over a million images. I consolidated all my Lightroom catalogs and I'm just looking at 99% crap. <laughs> it's just so bad. It's not every photographer. This is, you know, but there's a. Uh, something you know I'm not interested in the run-of-the-mill mediocre photographs you know the right composition I'm not interested in the photograph that everybody else can take I'm interested in you know showing people something that surprises them a little and my fellow photographers I want to leave them wondering how did she do that and so that takes a little bit of creativity and one of the things I like to do is something that Paul Nicklin taught me when I was his assistant. He said, you know, you spend the first 30% of your time getting the right composition, the right exposure, something that your editor can look at. Then you spend 30% of the time getting a little creative. You know, you change your perspective, you do something interesting with the lights or the leading lines or whatever it is. But the last 30%, you go a little crazy. You know, what happens when I do a really long exposure? What happens when, when I shoot straight into the light? And I feel like my photography lives in that last 30%. I'm always a little too ambitious, a little too bold. And that's why I have such a large failure rate. But when I hit the gold, I, I really like what, how it comes out. So it just takes ambition. What a wonderful approach to photography. You mentioned Paul Nicklin, he's your partner. And if we fast forward to 2014, you founded Sea Legacy. I believe you did it with Paul. What were your objectives with Sea Legacy? Tell us a little bit about it. Assume we don't know nothing about it. Yeah. So when I was still part of the International League of Conservation Photographers, I, I found that the problems that our planet faces were so big. And what the, the work that the photographers were doing was so diverse that it was really focused on one issue. It was really hard. And of course, my passion has always been the ocean and its creatures. So when I started working with Paul, first as his assistant and fixer on National Geographic assignments, we were out there in the front lines, photographing and documenting really harrowing stories. What happens to the ocean when it warms two, three, four, five degrees? What does it look like when animals die because there's toxic algae blooms in the ocean? All of these things. And I didn't feel like National Geographic was, you know, the, the right vehicle to really dive into those stories. They have a very diverse and big audience, but that audience is interested in natural history and pretty pictures. So when I moved here to Canada to be with Paul and I left the ILCP, I spent about a year not working on conservation, just working on Nat Geo. And after a year, both Paul and I were depressed and just demoralized, but we were seeing, you know, the ocean is dying and the story is not being told. And it was Paul's idea. He said, why don't we start a nonprofit? And I said, Paul, you've never done this. You know, it's really difficult. Anyway, we started Sea Legacy in 2014, and it really has taken us 10 years for it to become a robust, well-funded, well-run, very impactful organization. It's not an easy thing to start a nonprofit. Fundamentally, what what is the goal of Sea Legacy? What are you trying to achieve with this nonprofit? You know, where do you where do you want it to get to? 
Yeah, so I noticed when I was uh, working as part of the conservation community that all of the conservation groups that I was working with, you call it the World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, whatever it is, all of them dedicate less than 5% of their overall budget to communications, maybe with the exception of Sea Shepherd and a couple of others. But even that 5% that they're dedicating, 90% of that is for fundraising to cultivate new donors. So the message of what's happening to our planet has been lost. When it comes to the ocean, just in the United States, there's 5,000 small nonprofit organizations dedicated to the ocean, 5,000. And they don't have the resources to be seen, for their issues to be known, to have the impact because the public just doesn't know they exist. So I wanted Sea Legacy to be the speakerphone, the voice for hundreds, thousands of other organizations. So that's what we do today. We empower organizations all over the world and we help them find the spotlight, either through our social media or our relationships with earned media. My job is to highlight what's happening in the front lines so that it's not invisible, so that people know about it. So from a, a visual storytelling perspective, you know, getting that story out there, Sea Legacy, ILCP, whatever it might be, do you think the public responds more to the single image or the, the photo essay? How do you put them together? Is it hit them in the face with one or give them an entire story that they need to follow through? Oh, my God, David, you know, as much as I do, that we are bombarded by content. A lot of it really good. A lot of it is AI generated, you know. Either way, you open your phone and you are scrolling through massive numbers of really good content. So the job number one is how do you stop people from scrolling? <laughs> if you can get one photograph that makes people go, oh, what am I looking at here? You know, and you get them to read those first few lines in the caption, you're already winning. You know, if they read through the end of the caption to the call to action, to scroll through your other images, my goodness, you are in, you know, in the old metal league. It's so hard, so hard. So yeah, there's no room for mediocre photography or mediocre content. And there's got to be a clear call to action on every image. So it's it's that single single image. Forget oh the my God. stories from that perspective. Just People are sitting them. at the doctor's office and they're looking at a magazine, the few that, it's, that still exist. And you're competing with semi-naked Taylor Swift, you know, and the war in Hamas. I mean, it's just the competition for eyeballs is massive and the issues around us are so important. So people tend to forget about the environment. They tend to forget how we depend on nature. And just the daily reminder that if there's no biodiversity, there's going to be no humanity. It's just that's the job. But this is why your failure rate is so important, because you're trying to get something that grabs attention. It's not the same as every other picture you see out there. So it's worthwhile taking that approach. Yeah, I mean, e either by being the first or, or among the handful of first photographers that shows something different. Like I, I don't have a competitive bone in my body. You know, if I go and shoot something that nobody else has photographed before and then there's thousand photographers behind me, good. You know, the more photographers out there sharing this content, the better. But you have to be able to raise the bar and you have to be able to surprise people. My favorite reaction is, how did she do that? And what am I looking at here? So you already said a million images you're going through, all your Lightroom catalogs collected. If you had to pull out one image that best summed you and your work up, is that a changeable feast? Is it time of day, 
day of the week or is there one image that just sticks in your head for you love the aesthetic of it or it's told the story in a way that's grabbed people or you know is there that one picture you can pull out you know because i come from a tradition of of editorial photography working with national geographic you're always looking for those images right that have the many components that keep people looking at it and where people can draw their own conclusions about what they're looking at. And they have to be engaging and beautiful, even if it's a devastating picture. But I also have always had, I I think I'm an artist. I think I was born an artist. If I was not a photographer, I would be a painter or a musician. I just enjoy art and beauty and aesthetics. So it has to be beautiful as well. Every once in a while, we as photographers are able to, we'll live in people's, in, in our global, you know, communal consciousness. If I say to you, Napalm, Vietnam, you know which image I'm talking about. If I say Che Guevara, an image will come to your mind instantly. That, those are the kinds of images that you're trying to make. When it comes to nature, it's very, very difficult. I, I don't think for many photographers, we get to make many of those in our career. And so those are the ones we're looking for. And I don't think I've made any yet, Dave, but I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> I mean, a very self-effacing answer. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't right. buy it. No, I'm not, I'm not buying it. <laughs> I, I think you're right, though. I, you know, yes, there are images that do encapsulate an entire story in one picture that do live in the public consciousness. And yeah, I guess that's what we all strive to do. Mm. Uh, just some yes, of us. They like symbolize something bigger. Yeah, you love the oceans and you started with people. Obviously, people, especially those living in coastal regions, have an impact on the oceans. Do you still work with indigenous communities and their impact on the coastlines and and oceans where they farm or live? Absolutely. So I think I'm probably the only photographer that's uh, exclusively focusing on that in, you know, in the intersection between humanity, especially coastal and indigenous communities on the coast and ocean biodiversity. So I spend a lot of time with indigenous people, especially here in British Columbia and Canada. There's still so many traditional First Nation communities. So if you look at the photograph behind me, that's a Tla'amin First Nation woman. But uh, the Tlailwatu, the Kirisuheheis, I mean, these are people that are still living and surviving from the ocean. One of the groups that we're working with up in the Great Bear Rainforest, they self-determined that the ocean is their breadbasket. And they can no longer work for, wait for the government of Canada to protect that important resource for them. So they have created the first indigenous-led marine protected area in the world. And, you know, this is such an important inspiration for communities in other parts of the world, like in French Polynesia, where traditionally the Polynesian people have this concept called Rahui, which is an elder mandated protection of a resource that needs to recover. And so Rahui is coming now more and more as an important tool for indigenous-led conservation. This also happens in New Zealand with the Maori people in Papua New Guinea, in West Papua, in in so many other countries. So highlighting those stories is so important. Indigenous people are not helpless. They are the last people on the planet that still are connected to the operating system on planet Earth. They know the tides, the ebb and flow of the season. They know when the animals are coming. They know how to be careful when they harvest. They know how to let let it recover because their life depends on it. From my point of view, we need to be leaning more into that knowledge if we want to restore health and abundance to our planet. We're failing as a planet 
uh, or at least our political leaders are failing is to really take on the problems and to take on big business and capitalism and all of the other factors which are, are stopping us really paying attention to what's happening. Do you feel there's a groundswell now from, from smaller communities around the world that are ready to act and ready to make their voice heard? I think so. I, I've never seen what we're seeing today, just so much civic, civil society attending international conferences like the Conference of the Parties for Climate Change, which is happening in the next two weeks in Dubai. There's just a groundswell, especially of youth, demanding a livable future. You know, for, for older people, people like you and I, <laughs> we only have 15, 20 years left on this planet but for young people, they're looking at their entire future, their potential future families, and they're scared. They're terrified. So they are participating now more than ever, or the, although there's another contingent of people that have just turned their eyes away and are completely apathetic and hiding their head in the ground and they don't want to know anything about it. So we will see who wins, the forces of good or the forces of evil. To, to put the silver lining on that is if the if the forces of evil win, then we'll all be gone anyway. All human life will be gone and then the world can get back to being the world. So, you know. Yes, exactly. And you have to be that philosophical, David. Like, I, I think humans are inherently selfish and arrogant. And so we make it all about ourselves, you know, about the surviving of humanity. But then, no, it won't matter. You know, Mother Nature, she's powerful and she doesn't care. She will just shake us off and start over again, building a new set of biodiverse, incredibly beautiful creatures. So I wish I was there to see them. Um, you mentioned like the younger generation starting to have more of an impact. You've got several children. Do you see them sharing your passions for photography, for conservation, for the oceans, getting involved, trying to get their voices out there? You know, none of my kids are interested in photography from a professional point of view, but they're all conservationists. So I have one that works on uh, bird conservation. He works for the American Bird Conservancy, and he's the scientist who's leading the rediscovery of 10 species of birds that we thought were extinct. And, and this challenge to extinction is a really important and hopeful activity. So he's busy doing that. My second son is a botanist and he works with very strange and rare plants in the tropical rainforest. Uh, and my daughter works for me. Uh, she's an anthropologist published on my social media and my newsletter. She helps manage my photo shelter account and my photography and my fine art. All very passionate young people. Well, you've got to do them all a favor and stop talking old. I, I don't do old. <laughs> if I've only got 15 or 20 years left, I consider that a failure. I've got a lot longer than that. <sighs> Oh, gosh. I mean, but I, I do feel, um, you know, at almost 60, that the physical aspects of the job become more and more challenging and more and more dangerous, right? S swimming with big whales and surviving in the ocean is just at some point going to become irresponsible to even do it. So how can I occupy the, the you know, the last 15, 20 years of my productive life, uh, continuing to do this, staying, staying active? That leads us into uh, a very open-ended question, but, you know, what what is next for you? What what do you see these next 15 to 20 years looking like? What are your hopes and aspirations other than obviously saving the planet? Well, it took it took 10 years to build Sea Legacy into something that I'm really proud of. 
And Paul and I, along with Andy Mann, we have been the main photographers and filmmakers for the organization. But as I look into a horizon of retirement, I really want to grow the group of photographers and storytellers that works with Sea Legacy, people that are capable ocean people that can go out and continue filming and telling these stories. I hope that these people, these storytellers can be from indigenous communities and coastal communities around the world and not just uh, North America and Europe. And one day I get to retire, but there's a hundred ocean storytellers that are well-funded to continue doing the work that we've been doing. Then I'd be really happy, Dave. With so much going on in the planet and so many stories of so many aspects of conservation to be told, and this is probably a biased question, biased response. You think that the ocean is the most important story? That's the story that we need to get out there. You know, if we could only get one conservation story out there, you you want it to be the ocean. I'll, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I, I was do. hoping you uh, would. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Uh, the ocean, you know, produces at least 50% of the oxygen hum humans and wildlife, like the whole planet breathes. And just in the last 10 years, it started losing its ability to produce oxygen. As the water warms and becomes more acidic, you know, both of which are invisible threats, the communities of phytoplankton in the ocean have started to diminish. As we overexploit creatures like krill to make vitamins and supplements, the production of oxygen diminishes. As we continue to increase the output of fresh water from melting glaciers and ice caps, the production of oxygen decreases. I don't know anybody who can hold their breath for half the time. So yeah, I, I do worry about things like the many wars that are happening around the planet. I worry about famine and disease and all of these things, but I just don't think that stopping our breathing ability should be delegated to the bottom. And have we reached the tipping point yet? Are we, are we we're, at we're, a point where action is so imperative that we won't be able to turn it around? We're very close, Chris, and I hate being the bearer of bad news and gloom and doom, but the IPCC, the International Planet on Climate Change, um, which is a group of thousands of scientists that have come up with all these scenarios on what happens uh, on climate with uh, you know current levels of emission, they're basically telling us that if we reach the dreaded 1.5% Celsius increase in temperature, we're going to lose 90% of the coral reefs. If we get to 2%, we're going to lose 100% of the coral reefs. The oceans become uninhabitable. I think that's pretty serious. Yeah. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I mean, as a, as a biologist, you would understand this, David. You know, when the coral reefs and other ecosystems crumble, algae takes over. And these algae is a slime producer. So the oceans eutrophicate. They become more and more slimy. They become the home of jellyfish instead of fish. And, and they just stop producing oxygen. They become anoxic swamps. So do you think at the, the COP, which is just about to start, they can still hold on to that 1.5% or are we already edging over two? Well, they're saying that we are in course for 1.5%, that there's nothing we can do now to get below 1.5. So we're going to go there. And the people who live in places that saw, you know, 50 degrees centigrade this year for the first time or sustained 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the ocean, I mean, it's just going to get worse. So we have a problem with carbon in our, on our planet. We have emitted too much carbon that's sitting in the atmosphere. It's invisible. We don't see it. But the carbon molecule is a fat, heavy molecule, and it's difficult to get rid of it, the carbon dioxide. So we need to do two things, and we need to do them at the same time. We need to close the tap 
that keeps producing emissions. And that's where the conversation around electrifying the grid and electric vehicles and, you know, consumption lives. And that's 90% of the conversation. But the other part of it is we need to drain the top where all these carbon sits, if you imagine it as sitting in a bucket. And in order to absorb the carbon back into natural systems, we need the ocean. The ocean absorbs 25% of all carbon dioxide and sequesters it deep in the bottom of the ocean. And it pays a price. It's becoming more acidic. The chemical reaction between carbon and ocean creates an acid. And the ocean becomes more acidic. Creatures that are tiny and delicate, like phytoplankton or plankton, they cannot survive in an acidic environment. So yeah, emissions, you know, we need to curb them immediately. So here's the arguments that I hear, Chris. Oh, you know, electric vehicles, they're not perfect. Uh, you know, we still have a lot of problems with batteries. And yes, we do. You know, transitions are always messy. We're going to have to make some horrible compromises in order to decarbonize the economy, to move away from fossil fuels. And as a humanity, we have run out of easy solutions. Everything that we do from now on is going to be a horrible compromise because we painted ourselves into a corner. And so curbing emissions is going to take a lot of personal sacrifice and a lot of important choices that we make daily. And we need to stop making excuses. I hear people say things like, well, what difference is it going to make if I keep eating red meat? Well, you know, a purely carnivorous diet has enormous implications for emissions, right? So just reducing our consumption of meat has a massive impact. I'm not telling anybody to be vegan, you know, you cannot eat red meat every day and expect to live on a livable planet. Can't. So personal choices, but who we vote for is the most important thing we can do. And, and humans are short-sighted. You know, we're just thinking about our own wallet and the economy in the immediate future. We're not thinking about the survival of humanity. And people all over the world are electing people who just don't know or don't care about climate change. Do you think the oceans are underutilized as, a, as an energy source? We, we don't hear a lot about wave-generated energy. Oh, my gosh. I think be, because of our lazy reliance on fossil <clears throat> fuels, we really have left on the table so many good ideas. The ocean as a source of energy is massive, right? The tide, it rises and falls twice a day. You know, that alone should generate enough electricity for everybody. But of course, the wind, the sun, all of these technologies and the revolution that's happening around batteries is an important one because right now batteries have evolved significantly, but they are still consuming enormous amounts of resources that are difficult to get, like cobalt and nickel, right? And there are talks about mining the bottom of the ocean now to extract these minerals. And what I'm hoping to see, Chris, is a revolution in innovation because the batteries of the future need to be hydrogen batteries. You know, they need to have water as a byproduct. And I hope that as we painfully move away from fossil fuels, that revolution of innovation and new thinking comes about. Because otherwise, we're not going to make her. I think uh, the challenge that we face is something arcing back to what you said right at the start. These big businesses, notably big oil, are so entrenched in government that persuading them that they're going to be hit in the pocket because we're not going to need big oil anymore is the biggest challenge we face. Yeah, you're not mistaken, David. And they to maintain that narrative, these big oil companies invest millions and millions of dollars in on communications on their side of the story on convincing not just governments but civil society and academia they have these think tanks you know where they pay scientists to spew the bullshit that keeps the machine running right 
And my question is, where is the funding to tell the other side of the story? The people that are, you know, advocating for the future of nature in different ways, you know, the funding is so difficult to get. So I would say that the, the two main objectives of a photographer's career should be to increase the audience engagement, you know, get your followers to listen to these stories and increase the funding. People just don't even know that they have to support conservation and environment with their own pockets because we are starving for funding. That feels like a really poignant point to kind of bring this to a close. Um, a really important message to, to drive home to all our listeners who are, for the most part, photographers about what they should be doing. It's your call to action finisher, Paul Nicklin's Jab Jab Punch. Uh, I think you've you've jabbed us a bit and, and landed that punch right at the end. But I'm not going to let you get away with that one question that we do ask everybody, which Chris always writes down in a variety of derogatory ways, because this is a question that I like to ask people. So for all of your career, everything you've done, everything you've achieved, you have no doubt learned some lessons that you would probably have liked to have known when you were younger. So if you could talk to the younger you, if there was one piece of advice, one driving thought that you could give the younger you, what would it be? You know, there's a, there's a full chapter about this in my master's of photography class. But I, I do think that if I could go back to speak to my younger self, I wish I could have become more confident a lot sooner. You know, I doubted myself. I thought, you know, who wants to listen to me? I'm just a Mexican kid, you know, and I'm a woman too. <laughs> So I wish I had known that declaring yourself for a cause is okay. That speaking loudly and educating yourself about the issues you care about is okay. It's almost like wearing an invisible superhero suit. You know, you choose to put it on every morning and then you start acting out your superhero role. You talk to other people about the things that you care about. You express it in every aspect of your life with passion and conviction and joy and optimism, right? I wish I had known that sooner, David, because what I see out there is a lot of people hesitating and hoping that somebody gives them permission to become part of this conversation. And so hereby, I grant you all permission. Please go and be superheroes because we need an army of you. And we need more women to speak out. I get very frustrated because the most intelligent stuff I hear these days, especially about this subject, come from women. I would encourage every woman just to start speaking out, speaking out with, with what they think and feel and with their photography. And Absolutely. Uh, it, I, I love your passion in this. You, you're talking about a subject which is in many ways grim. The prognosis isn't good. And yet you've done it in such a way that it's kind of inspiring. So to my fellow women, uh, you know, we, we live in a society that is uh, still a patriarchy, you know, where men rule. And women, we have learned to speak the language of men. And this is a language of extraction, uh, dominance, you know, exploitation. And as women, we speak a very different language. And we need to teach men how to speak that language. It's a feminine language of empathy and compassion and solidarity with other humans. And we just can't be shy about it. You know, it's a, it's a good language. So learn, learn to speak it, boys. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> Our ears are open. <laughs> We make a few mistakes along the way, yeah. some of us. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, it's in by no means an accusation, but it is challenging uh, the status quo of the way that we humans think about each other and about the planet we live on. Must be frustrating too. Hmm. It's a superpower, Chris. But you're still smiling. 
<laughs> Absolutely. You know, the, the day that we lose the, the joy and the optimism and the work that we do, then that day is, you know, the day that we're done. So I'm not ready to be done. Good. And for more than 15 or 20 years, please. <laughs> I hope. Oh, hopefully by then we have solved this crisis and then we can all put our cameras down and <laughs> just oh. go to the beach. Wouldn't that be good? But I'm never putting my camera down. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what, you know, it is very, very important. Maybe I'll just leave you with this thought to articulate the vision of where we're going to, you know, what is it that we're trying to achieve? So let's imagine that planet we want that's alive and full of incredibly interested and beautiful creatures, because that's where I want to live. And, you know, I want to manifest that future. Great point to end. Thank yeah. you. I've, I've nothing to add to that. It's the future we all want. And you don't know how rare right. it is that you've managed yeah. to stop him talking. <laughs> You've enjoyed this conversation so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Pleasure. Christina, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to putting this podcast out. I'm going to go back to my Lightroom and that depression reality of my photography. Uh, no, no, <laughs> you can't so end much. on a negative. <laughs> You're going to be <laughs> seeing beautiful you. pictures. So oh, I'm, I'm, har I'm harvesting the handful that are beautiful. <laughs> thank you so Bye. much. Okay, we'll wrap up and say thank you very much again for joining us, Christina. It's been uh, phenomenally interesting, inspirational. Every other adjective that I can think of that's positive and driving. Uh, so thank you for your time. And, and uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing more of your work. Yep, it's been everything I hoped it would be and more. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen.